Hello, and welcome to NER Out Loud, a podcast series from the New England Review. I'm Yardena Carmi, and today I'm excited to present There Was a Brood by L. Williams III, a prose poem in which the narrator grapples with a broken-down car, failing public infrastructure, and a brood of cicadas descending upon Missouri in the summertime, from issue number one of NER volume 44. In this episode, you'll hear L. read his poem, followed by a brief interview. Listen on for our discussion about the complexities of writing about personal experience, poetic form, and unexpected encounters with the natural world. L. Williams III's poetry has been published or is forthcoming in Alaska Quarterly Review, Orion Magazine, Plowshares, River Styx, Shenandoah, and elsewhere, and has been anthologized in Best American Poetry. He has received fellowships and scholarships from Kaveh Kanem, Community of Writers, the Minnesota Northwoods Writers' Conference, Tin House, and The Watering Hole. A St. Louis native, he currently resides in Bloomington, where he is a dual MFA-MA candidate in Poetry and African-American and African Diaspora Studies at Indiana University. Recently serving as the creative nonfiction editor for the Indiana Review, he is presently the journal's poetry editor. Hi, this is L. Williams III, and I'm reading my poem, There Was a Brood. There was a brood rude with loudness, its overarching chorus of song and sex, fat flying insects once buried in the pockets of this town, loosened and flamboyantly doing their business in the trees then, all around, dying, as I sat within their buzz, Reckoning with the death of my car, its engine, which by summer kept trying but had grown sluggish, and began one evening to knock against the rhythm of a slow crank. I told the symptoms to a mechanic who told me it was the work of a busted catalytic converter. Said soon, my old five ultimate would conclude as the falling cicadas, that it too had accomplished what it was put on earth to do. Will I be damned? My grandma, two hours east, responded to the knowledge of the cataclysmic reports. You ain't but had that car for a few months, her voice sang against the rain of bugs. The little humps and thumps of fire sang against the rain of her telephone's background noise. The will of fortune reminders splicing our evening chatter. It was a season in which NPR published an article about Missourians. Sparkies on South 9th Street using the bug meat to make ice cream batter. And I learned quickly that when classes weren't in session, when spring semester ended and majority of the college students were gone, Columbia Transit didn't fully operate. What is it they say? If life gives you a cicada invasion, make me scream. But what was I to do about an inadequate public transit system? You better get on a good foot, my sister advised. The two of us feeling played. She haven't invested 1000 of the $5,000 spent to buy the hand-me-down vehicle. In Ferguson, there was a used car salesman named Majid, who bragged about the Altima being a bit of a Frankenstein, an 05 body with an 06 grill and hearts, both parts coming from the same model with fewer miles, totaled, portions being sold like black market organs. Sounds like magic, I said when he gave us his name. 
and by the time I drove off the lot, my auntie was telling everybody we passed. This my nephew, he in college, and this his car. That was April. Perhaps we were fooled. But that June, the cicadas molted their nymph skins. And oh, the males, how they flex, vibrating their timbles, the whole lot of them, and their drone of mating and death encroached upon me. Eventually, I began to walk the 6.4 miles to work shifts at the downtown Papa John's. No, seriously, what was I to do about an inadequate public transit system? On weeknights, I drafted emails to the city's Department of Transportation. You're welcome to voice your concern at our next city council meeting, a representative once responded. How the hell am I supposed to get there? I retorted. And by July, lone cicadas reigned in the Missouri heat. Pools of them were at the base of trees and lined the sidewalks. I walked and they sang. I called Majid and he told me I most certainly had the wrong number. And now, a short conversation with Elle about this piece. So, thank you so much for meeting with me today, Elle. I'm really excited to discuss your piece from the latest NER, There Was a Brood. Thank you so much. I'm excited to speak with you about this particular poem. It's exciting for me, just the poem itself, and to talk about it with people who are interested in it. I first off wanted to ask, this poem is really deeply rooted in descriptions of summer in Missouri, where you grew up, and I was curious about what you embrace or avoid when writing about home. Yeah, thank you for that. I really embrace family. As you can see in the poem, uh, many voices come in. My grandmother's voice, my aunt's voice. One of my, I have three sisters. My, one of my sister's voices comes in. Um, in an earlier version of the poem, my great-grandmother was in there. The car salesman, the used car salesman voice kind of comes in a little bit. I think the people make home for me. That's why I return often to see family, to hang out with my nieces and nephews, characters that I grew up with, and not characters in like a caricature, but like characters in like these people who I grew up with or people who really were great storytellers and really were very entertaining and smart and thrilling to be around. And these spaces were so nurturing and so dense with culture and rich with love that they just spill over into the writing. Oftentimes when I do write about home, if I'm writing about um, Missouri or St. Louis is where I'm from, St. Louis, this, this poem takes place in Columbia, Missouri. Um, when I was an undergraduate student in 2011, um, that's when the Great Southern Brood made its way to Columbia, Missouri, Mid-Missouri. And then I also bring in Ferguson. And in an earlier version, I had workshopped it a lot of times, workshopped it with a poet that I really admired. And they wanted me to um, kind of mention like Mike Brown or the incidents of the Ferguson uprising from 2014. And I kind of was uh, curious about that because I was like, well, this is happening before that. And to me, Ferguson's a place um, it's a home of many mm-hmm. people. It doesn't just exist in the confines of white supremacist terrorism. It's a place and not an event um, in which people see it. So I think that that geotag sort of raises people's antennas like, oh, Ferguson, I know that I can pl- pinpoint that based on the, those events from 2014, 15, 16, et cetera. However, for me, I didn't 
I'm going back and forth about that. I know I'm probably going on a tangent, but I'm going back and forth about that piece of like trying to include allusions to like Brown and the Fergus Uprisers, or should I just keep it at home how it feels for me? So yeah, home is really important. I really enjoy that aspect. Thank you for that question. Yeah, I love that answer. Um, and I thought your response was really interesting. I think that is like, at least for me, a big question that comes up when writing about home or what's personal is you're in your writing evoking a whole set of assumptions that the reader might be making based on place or your identity. And I think it's really interesting to hear about how you address that in your process for this poem. Yes, I think when I began to write seriously, I began to write from a very race-based uh, stick it to the man headspace. And though I enjoyed that, I, you know, coming from Black poetic traditions of the Black arts movement and people writing poetry for the sake of politicizing the art and saying this, we won't take it no more. I'm in a space where I'm trying to do these two things at once, where I'm trying to take care of myself and my readers who are also Black and coming from these environments, while also saying that these worlds do not revolve around whiteness. This is a world in which we live every day. We have good times, et cetera. And I don't have to allow white supremacist thought to take over. All right, does that make sense? Hopefully it does. <laughs> yeah, that actually well brings me to a question that I was going to save for later. But something I did really appreciate about this piece is the way it really painted a comprehensive picture, at least what seemed to me like a slice of the narrator's life at the time. There are these cycles of life and death. There's family, there's shady used car salesmen and financial stress and the failures of city infrastructure and cicadas everywhere all the time. And one big takeaway that I had from that was that despite the like severity or intensity of the issues you were touching on, I did find a lot of notes in, of humor, which I appreciated. And I'm really curious to hear about how that figured into your process. Humor. So that's a, it's silly because I don't consider myself to have like humorous moments in my poetry. And I guess at some points there are humorous points. I'm curious to know which parts are like funny or humorous to you. I think for me, the humor comes with um, some of the terms in the poem where the voices come, like my grandmother saying, well, I'll be down, you know, <laughs> or mm-hmm. uh, my sister saying, we better get on the good foot. Like, I, I, she has nothing else to give me. She's giving money. She's giving advice. And she has nothing else to give me. But like, get on the good foot. Just walk. Like, there's nothing more for you to do. Just walk. My aunt, who is also a very lively person, very excited for me to be a first-gen college student, for me to be an independent student coming from this space and driving off with a used car lot with a nice, shiny car. And she's just like out the window, like, y'all see him? This is my nephew. He has a car. And to me, it's I think it's so familiar that I know it's funny, but at the same time, I'm so used to my the women in my family being so silly. It's secondhand nature that I'm like, oh, this could be funny to other people. And there are other parts, too. I think maybe the um, sometimes when I read this poem, the quote that I take from NPR, if life gives you a cicada invasion, and then I put my voice into it, make me scream. But the, the uh, byline, I think, says, if life gives you a cicada invasion, make ice cream. And I think I switched it up. And I think sometimes people will laugh at that. Um, different audiences laugh at different parts. But to me, I'm like, oh, I don't know. I didn't really set out to, to write a humorous poem, but I guess humor does come in. Yeah, I mean, I think... 
In terms of what I found funny, the NPR line kind of got me. Uh, I mean, I like puns. And also NPR is so like dry and okay. like analytical and just like picturing them going in and profiling this cicada ice cream. Um, so that that got to me. And then also kind of the final image of the poem where the speaker is writing these emails to the city council. And- oh, yeah. See, those. Yeah. That's humorous now, but it was not funny when I was. Really I bet. <laughs> and I and I was writing it as a person who's able body, twenty years old, twenty twenty one years old, able to walk miles and miles in the heat as long as I got some water. And I don't even think I carried a water bottle. And I was walking mostly on the side of a freeway, and um, an able body person able to do that. But when I would get home, I'd say, "Okay, I'm hot. I'm tired. I'm working class." But what about the people who are not able-bodied? What about the people who don't even have access to the internet right now? What about the people who need the need the transportation but are not students? I was also a student, so I did have that privilege, but I was just a student who was working summers in Columbia. And so I was thinking about myself, but also thinking about those who couldn't walk those miles and those who just needed the transportation. Like, why would the transportation stop if the student body's gone? Uh, what about the locals? What happens for them during this time, that was my main thought. And so it was a really frustrating time for me to write those emails. But looking back on it now, I'm like, okay, it is silly because we're just going back and forth. And when I do get a response, uh, they said, well, come on to the, the meeting and tell us about it. And I'm like, well, what? how am I supposed to get there? Like, it was like a circle, like spiraling into this surreal element of like, dang, y'all really just going to leave me out here to walk. And it's not just, not just me who's doing this, the other people. And what about those other people? And how can I try to make it better for those who are not a part of the institution and so that was that but yeah looking back it's silly but then it was very kind of sad <laughs> like i don't even know how to explain it. it was just sad i was just sad for the community in a sense of like why is the infrastructure just failing so many people and not considering those who are not here to be connected with the university yeah, I mean, I think definitely the pain of that situation comes through. It's really hard to picture having to walk, what was it, like six miles in the heat back and forth? 6. 4, I think it was 6.4 miles, something like that. I think 6.4, I don't know. I know, I know it was hot. <laughs> it was hot. Yeah, <laughs> there was a quote, there's a quote that I keep in my mind from Maya Angelou's I Know Other Cage Bird Sings. And so this is creative nonfiction. Angelo is talking about her life as a child, coming from Stamps, Arkansas, going to St. Louis, where her mother lives. And uh, the paragraph starts when she gets to St. Louis. St. Louis is a new type of hot, or something like that. Maybe this quote, St. Louis is a new type of hot. And so I said, oh, that's, that kind of makes sense, because it's humid. <laughs> it's humid. It's really humid. It sits on the lip of the Mississippi River, and it's hot when it's hot. Um, and I'm used to, I used to run tracks, so I'm used to it. But yes. Yeah, and I think, I mean, when I'm was reading the poem and thinking about what felt to me like the major themes. There's the cycle of walking back and forth to work and these really like frustrating emails going back and forth. And then the life cycle of the cicadas and of your car ultimately dying on you. I felt like I could see the juxtaposition of all these events laid out in the poem. And I was wondering, was tying those themes together an obvious choice? Not initially. I, uh, this poem sprung from another poem that I was revising. And so when this poem came about, I was revising a poem about walking after my car had died. And so when that poem, as I was trying to think, well, what, what happened? Like, why did I begin walking? I said, like, oh, that's why I began walking because my car has started acting up. And when my car started acting up, 
that's when the cicadas came about. And so I just began writing down like notes of like, this is what happened. I was walking, my car died. And those notes eventually turned into like a big chunk, like block of text. And so I think this is a separate poem. And so I was looking at the themes of like the car really is what I want to talk about. And when that came about, I was like, okay, well, I don't know what's happening, but something's happening. And then in later drafts, I was like, oh, I guess I can tie the death of the car and the death of the cicadas coming into life and dying briefly and procreating and dying briefly together and all of those things. But initially it wasn't that, it was something just to help me with the revision of another poem. And so it just turned out that way. I was also really fixated on the cicadas as a, a theme for this poem growing up in Ohio. I grew up in northern Ohio, so we'd get cicadas every summer. And then I remember a couple years ago driving to Columbus, so a few hours south, and it was like, oh, these are cicadas. It was like they were smacking into your windshield as soon oh, as yep. you got out of your car. They were all in your face. It was yep. kind of like a biblical plague. And I, I think it's so interesting, the idea that like for a few months out of every summer, people in this huge huge swath of the country just have to live like in this cloud of insects. And I know people who think they're really cool and people who think they're completely like gross and disgusting. And I was kind of wondering, uh, personally, where do you come down on cicadas? You know, that summer, okay, let me, I have to give you this, this other backstory. So when I worked at Papa John's, I started, when I started working at Papa John's, I did not have a car. So I would catch the bus to campus, walk from campus to downtown. And so eventually when spring break came, Got my car, told my supervisor, I said, hey, I got a car. I'll be driving to work. He said, oh, you have a car now. You can do door stickers. And so door stickers meant that I didn't have to be in a restaurant. I would clock in, get in my car, go to like resident areas, stick these advertisements on the doors and leave real quick because some places don't want you to, <laughs> to do solicitations. Like, <laughs> And then my car started to act up and I started hearing in the wind this buzz, this drone. And I was like, what in the heck? And I had never experienced that in St. Louis. And if I did experience it, it was as a child, maybe like summertime when I wasn't paying it. I probably was playing so hard that I wasn't paying attention. But as I'm walking around trying to do door stickers, I'm like, is the world coming to an end? Is it locust? Like, is what's happening? Seems like something's going on that I haven't experienced yet. And I just get in the car drive, then the car died. And I was like, oh no, I'm stuck in nature with these things. And they are vicious and they are frightening. I started walking. I was like, oh, they're just kind of making a lot of noise in the trees and then dying. And they're not really harming me. As that happened, things just fell apart. Like I wasn't the privileged person to drive around. I was like the person who had to walk through the cicadas and through town to get on the line. But at the same time, I think I appreciate them. I, I like the concept of them. I know poets use cicadas a lot in their poems. I tried my best to bring something fresh with the cicadas, especially with the Hama Nim brood. Brood being both the brood of the cicadas and the brood of the speaker who's having to deal with this broken down, busted lemon of a car. And there was a, a brood <laughs> that happened in uh, Indiana last summer. And it wasn't too bad for me. I know there were other people who are like, this is disgusting, nasty, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, I just feel that the world is for everything. And cicadas are just a part of the world, as I am. Who knows what they think about me, you know? Yeah, I think also they're such a good reminder of, I mean, they're so small, but like together, they're so much bigger than anything. I, like, I mean, they're, they're fat, though. They're like plump. <laughs> they're plump, yeah. No, they're crazy. Um, and just like that, by the end of the summer, and you're just finding like pieces of them everywhere. Last semester, 
in Bloomington, Indiana, I was walking in my apartment and I seen a uh, the husk of a cicada shell, and I was like, "Oh, <laughs> leftover remains from this from like months ago." I was like, "Oh, that's sad." Yeah. So another question I had about this poem was about your decisions about structure. On the page is this really dense block of text, but there's a lot of punctuation, which gives it a rhythm I really enjoyed. I was kind of wondering how you made that choice to make it so compact. So this poem has went through a lot of revisions. Um, initially, when I was writing my notes down as a way to revise the other poem, the poem was just a big block of text with no punctuation. And I would try to read it like that to like my friends who are sort of my readers. I think I read it at a reading one time like that. I would just take a big gulp of breath, like a big breath, and I'll just let it all out. No punctuations at all. And then I said, okay, well, I need to figure out how to punctuate this while also staying true to the sort of surrealness that's happening for the speaker. In a later draft, the first sentence that is now the first sentence, the run-on title, There Was a Brew, Brew with Loudness, came to mind. Actually, when I was at an indoor track meet, talking to my professor, and I just put the note down on my phone, went back home, made another revision. And once I got that, I said, okay, well, I think There Was a Brew is, is the title, and I separate, make it a fragment. There was a brew space, brew with loudness, period. And then go to the next part. Instead of using commas to direct the reader, what if I just use periods and disrupt the reading a little bit for the reader as the speaker's disrupted by the things that are happening in his universe? And so I use periods to disrupt the reading, disrupt the syntax, fragment it, allow for the speaker to give a vibe that there's a disruption, but also the rhythm that happens, the internal rhyme of the sentences. I wanted that to be prevalent as well. And there's some people who will use like backslashes. I thought that that would be too messy, and I thought periods also would just sort of be indicative of cicadas. And some people have mentioned that in workshops, like, oh, these kind of feel like the cicadas are interrupting. I was like, oh, that does feel that way. I guess so. And so I was like, I think periods make more sense for this prose poem that wants to disrupt and distract and do these things. The syntax gets longer, and there's a frame narrative, and then the syntax gets shorter at the end. So yeah, the prose block that was once just a big thought with no punctuation turned to me revising it to include periods instead of commas, trying to figure out rhythm, disruption, and form, form and content. Like, what's the best form and content for this? That's cool. I, I like the idea about the periods being the, the bugs themselves. I think that's also like a funny part about workshopping is when someone says something, you're like, oh, yeah, I totally meant to do that. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> maybe I did. Yes. Yeah, I agree. I do want to mention, too, I was taking a class with Dr. Terry Francis. She was teaching an Afro-Surrealist film studies course. I think that influenced the initial draft of this poem, too. I do want to shout her out because I think that this poem fits into her syllabus and what we were reading, what we were doing. I think that kind of went into the work that I was doing in that draft. So, yeah, periods and just weird stuff happening all over. Awesome. Yeah, I see that. It is, I think, very surreal. I think my final question for you is just out of personal curiosity, um, how do you like to sit down and get in the zone and write? So I sit in my apartment in Bloomington most times. I have a little small office space and I have an altar uh, with ancestors and I have plants and books and a little small library. 
I like to write really, really late at night slash early, early, early in the morning. I'm a night owl, so I, I write and revise and am my best self artistically when it's 10 o'clock p.m. to 3 o'clock a.m. And in those hours, it's so quiet and beautiful and dark that I'm just in the zone. I like to have incense burning um, so I can breathe and allow myself to follow rhythm and hear rhythm and follow patterns and processes within my work, especially when I'm revising to see what works and doesn't work. I also like to re record myself and send it to my friends who are my readers to see what it sounds like to them and to myself and then have them give feedback to Sometimes I will send a text at like two o'clock in the morning and some, a lot of times my poet friends will be up at two o'clock in the morning doing the same thing. That's really my process, reading, writing, in my space. If I'm not at home, I try my best to write down my thoughts as quickly as possible. If I don't have pen and paper in hand, um, the good thing about the smartphone, the iPhone, is that I could get in my notes real quick. Um, like I said earlier, when I was talking to my professor and the thought just kind of like, there's a brutal, brutal loudness, but I know I had to write this sentence down quickly or else I would have lost it. So always trying to capture those thoughts, those moments. And always trying to be in a peaceful space, surrounded by things that are going to influence me and allow me to be my best artistic self. That's lovely. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. And thank you so much for talking with me today. It was really cool to hear more about the poem and the backstory and the process that went, went into it. And thank you for taking the time. Thank you so much. This is beautiful. And thank you for engaging with the work and talking to me about it. That is like a high praise for a poet. <laughs>I'd like to give a huge thank you again to Al Williams for recording his work for us and sitting down to discuss his poem, There Was a Brood, published in NER Volume 44, Issue 1. This episode of the NER Out Loud podcast was edited and produced by me, Yardena Carmi, Spring 2023 podcast producer at NER and a senior English and German double major at Middlebury College. The NER Out Loud podcast is produced by the New England Review in association with Middlebury College. Our original theme music is by Thomas Wentworth. All other music was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. You can read or hear more at nereview.com, as well as purchase print or digital editions of recent volumes. If you want to stay updated on the podcast, make sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or SoundCloud. And remember to subscribe to the New England Review so you don't miss our latest issues. From NER Out Loud, I'm Yardena Carmi. Thank you for listening.